Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may find yourself in the world. This is Nicole BZ. Do I do that? Do I actually say this is Nicole BZ at the beginning of these? I am vehemently opposed to intros because I personally never listen to the intro on a podcast. I don't need to hear the same thing over and over again. I also skip past your ads if you've got those going. And so I like to just kind of jump on in. But it occurred to me I may have never actually said my name, but I just did then. So anywho, welcome. It is it's 5 a.m. And you might hear the heat on behind me. I'm in a room that is typically so cold. <laughs> wearing a bathrobe on top of my sweatshirt to keep me warm. But for some reason, the heat actually kicked on. And I've been sitting here for 15 minutes waiting for it to go off. And it's still going. And I got a really busy day. So I wanted to get started. And I'm excited about today. It's a, uh, it's a sneaky one. This is a Quantum Business Book Club episode. And I think potentially one of the most quantum of the books <laughs> in the sense that we will cover centuries of economics, both past and potential, giving you the opportunity to really figure out where exactly you fall on this timeline and where you might want to explore, again, past or potential. And I, this, I'm sneaking this one in. This was not actually part of my plan, but I think I talk about this in another one of my podcasts. My plans are very egocentric. It's my very logical mind wanting to nail down all of the details and securities and consistencies of which there really are none. <laughs> but so I make these huge 36 month long plans, kind of knowing that as soon as as soon as I've done that, I'm going to be able to throw them out the window. And this is this was definitely a um, jump out the window idea. The last book, the first book of the Quantum Business Book Club series was Think and Grow Rich. And I chose that because it's over 100 years old. So again, absolutely time traveling while reading it. But because it offers some of the, I was going to say gems, I have, I've heard it regurgitated and repurposed so many times in present day financial teachers, money masters, you know, the abundance, light and love crews, mantras down to the much more conservative, have no debt. These people who preach their money mastery and really, I think, you know, they're just kind of regurgitating what has proven to be incredible ways of building wealth and security. Now, it's uncomfortable for me to just simply present something painted as capitalism. And I'm not an anti-capitalist. I definitely have plenty of my people and experience who are, but I think we've gotten very far away from potentially the free market capitalism that can actually be really empowering. The fact that any one person has the ability to create a livelihood that is fulfilling and sustaining for them and their family is an amazing opportunity that hasn't always existed, at least in this quote unquote, civilized history. <laughs> and it, it can be it can be triggering, especially if you find yourself on the side of the fence that feels like the have-nots, the ones that lack the privilege, the ones that weren't necessarily part of the colonial, the colonization, but more the invasion, right? So I wanted to kind of present a different picture, but what I realized in rereading this book for probably the eighth time is that it's the same principles. This idea that the only thing, there goes the heat, yay. The only thing that can truly offer you the security 
and the impact and the influence. And I don't want to say control, but that that idea that you are whole and you are the one creating your reality is your mind, is your your thoughts and your relationship with your experience. And especially in the United States where this podcast is currently being recorded and by someone who was born here, I can certainly relate to this idea that we've created a a pretty finite relationship with money. And only when you are able to reevaluate your own personal relationship can you start to change your experience. And so I'm bringing this episode up and out and focusing on Sacred Economics, the book by Charles Eisenstein, because there are some fundamental flaws in our current reality. And until you individually address your relationship with money, there's no way that society as a whole can. And so often we externalize that need. We blame. We blame the man. We blame the system. We blame the inherent inequities in this experience. And it's not to say that none of those aren't true, but a lot of them have been manufactured to the point where they feel like truths. And this is where just saying, you know, you create your reality can be so triggering. Our thoughts, our beliefs feel very true. They feel like fact. And until we start challenging our own mind and relationships and thoughts, nothing's going to change. Firstly, these aren't all my opinions, right? What I've just shared are my opinions. But moving forward, what I'm going to be getting into is Sacred Economics, the book by Charles Eisenstein, written, I think, originally, I want to say about 15 years ago. It has since been revised, and I'm, I'm currently reading the edition that came out last year. So not all, everything that I present is going to be my opinion. But what I will say is this this book falls much more in alignment with my own beliefs. And I've actually been exploring alternative economic systems since I was a teenager, which was a while ago. <laughs> and I found I had stumbled upon a system called participatory economics, which was presented by a handful of researchers and economists, both in Canada and New England, United States. I'm not a big one for just complaining about shit and talking about how broken it is. But when you think about our economic system, when you think about our financial and monetary systems, they feel so big and so amorphous. Like they've actually become their own entities because we we rally against them so hard, but there aren't a lot of ground level actionable solutions. And I've mentioned this book a million times in my newsletter, The Loop. If you're not signed up, you should check it out. Go to NicoleVZ.com to sign up, or I think you can go to my Instagram, LinkedIn, or Linktree, or whatever it is, at the BZ channel to hear, you know, kind of like the books and everything that I'm reading before I even put them out in the Quantum Book Club. Because the Quantum Book Club is really intended to be kind of like for your business, for your own success. You know, these different books that I've certainly used, but, and I'm also trying to pull from books that aren't necessarily the mainstream. Thinking Grow Rich is 1,000%, but blah, blah, blah. I digress. So I'm sharing my thoughts on this book to help you understand why this matters, what's important for you to know, and how you can start to create this change in your day-to-day -day if you feel so called. I'm also going to talk a little bit about how we got here and 
potentially where we can go. So with that, I think the reason this is so pressing is we've just been through a pandemic and someone argue we're still going through it. This is February 2022, whenever you're actually listening. But a lot of business did not survive. And I am a small business coach. I work with small business owners actually all around the world. And I can say quite safely that every single person that I worked with managed to keep their doors open. And for most of them, they're actually experiencing some of the most financially successful years to date. Now, I'm not taking credit for that. These people did that. But how did they do it? How did they survive? How did they pivot? You know, and it's because they they have built community. It's because they had relationship with themselves, with their staff, if that was relevant, with their wider local community or business industry. And they are also able to get support. The type of person who has a coach or a mentor or any type of relationship that is purely intended to support them in their own leadership, they have a different relationship with their work and with their finances than someone who does not. And I can say that with fact, with assurance. So why don't we feel like we have that support of that community in our experience? Why do we feel as if it is us against the world? That's actually the entire first section of Sacred Economics. The book is divided into three different sections, right? And so the first section is how we got here. Then the second section is really about what are we going to do about it? And then the third section is an actual dissection of how you can start applying this in your day to day. And he goes a little bit into businesses and individuals that are living their lives in this way. He also challenges some of the more, I don't want to say popular, but kind of knee jerk reactions to our current economic conundrum. You know, the off-gridders, the people who are going back to the land. And sure, it feels like, you know, isolating yourself or or participating in, in a little bubble of a self-sustaining community is leading by example, but only if you're living in relationship with the wider community with, with, within which you are a part. By simply separating yourself, you're actually furthering the divides that we're experiencing. So how did we get here? This idea of separation, I mean, that is fundamentally what Charles Eisenstein believes is the precursor to where we are right now. The division between man and nature, the division between spirit and matter, the division between art and commerce. This idea that everything is separate. And it's obvious how we got here. We feel separate. We're all in our little spacesuits running around on this giant ball, having our, an individual experience. Or are we? That's for later in this discussion. By running with this idea that we're all separate, we create this illusion of scarcity. And now Charles is really careful to say scarcity is a very real experience, but it's not a factual occurrence. There is more than enough. We know that, you know, some of the billionaires and some of the gatekeepers and some of the haves have so much that truly everyone on this earth could be provided for. Now, they're not. That is obvious. So this isn't an abundance issue. This is a distribution issue. The fact of the matter, though, is that abundance is available to all. 
but we feel like it's potentially not part of our own experience. And one of the reasons for that is money, currency has become the metric for abundance. But if you listen to nothing else in this whole episode, hear this. Money cannot fulfill what is most important to us, the unquantifiable, the experience of love, of peace, of acceptance, of fulfillment. However, when we use money to fulfill these needs, it is impossible, therefore insatiable. Therefore, there is never enough. Now, money is a fantastic unit of measure. I heard it recently referred to as a measure of unit of energy. Now, that's not spiritual woo-ha-ha energy. That is quite literally the amount of time and output it may take in order to receive the good or service that you are purchasing. If we use money to measure quantifiable exchange, it's a fantastic tool. But by using money to try and fulfill things that are unquantifiable and therefore immeasurable, can you see how that would be a really slippery slope? Like you would just keep needing more and more and more. The flip side of this is Another unit of measure, which we have been programmed to believe is scarce, is time. We experience time as limited, as scarce, and therefore our lives are limited, are hurried, are rushed. Again, this message of scarcity, there is not enough. The more that we are not just fed it, but the more we buy into it, the more division we're going to experience. And so just like Think and Grow Rich, which is almost the opposite, I would say, of this spectrum in terms of economic thought, it still boils down to the exact same challenge. Can you change your relationship, the way you think about money? Because money is just a social agreement. And, and again, I just want to be clear, these are this is what's being transposed in <laughs> sacred economics. Please read the book. It is, it is dense, but Charles does a phenomenal job of breaking down incredibly complex economic systems into very simple, digestible thoughts and ideas. He also has a million YouTube videos. You can watch any of them. And just so you're aware while I'm going through the rest of this, he lives his life through this perspective, through this lens. So, and I'll get into the details of that. But when you think, oh, well, this is impossible. This is never going to work. This is a man with four children and a partner who is absolutely living his life in alignment with the rest of this discussion. So money is a social agreement. We need to, or we have this opportunity to update this agreement. Traditionally, money was backed originally by gold. Well, I shouldn't say originally. Money was backed by a commodity. So this piece of paper or this, you know, hunk of metal was meant to represent the value of a particular universal commodity, which is just something that can be bought and sold, right? Originally, money was, was simply used to represent trade and commerce. And it was, you know, the gatekeeper was essentially the ruler of the land, whoever that may be, who would essentially collect all of the money and disperse all of the money and collect all of the money and disperse all of the money. And in doing that, there was a certain, it's not dissimilar to cryptocurrencies, there was a certain amount of currency burned <laughs> to maintain its value, with the idea being that the whole point of money is to circulate it, to use it in exchange for goods and services. Now, where this started to go sideways, was when we stopped 
well, oh my, okay. There's a lot of places where this started to go sideways and I'm going to do my best to kind of stay out of the weeds. Otherwise this is going to be like a five hour podcast, but essentially we stopped using money as a representation of, of commodity. And we started using it as a representation of what Charles refers to as the commons. And again, just to keep it sort of big picture, the commons are the earth, the air, the water, and the energy available to all of us. And he would argue that as a human, we have been gifted into this life. We received this life to live on this earth, to breathe this air, to drink the water, and to feel the sunlight, just as an example in terms of energy. But when the United States started backing its money by oil, which could be argued both energy or earth, we switched into a paradigm where we started using finite resources to fund exponential growth. Now, if we had an infinite amount of oil or an infinite amount of land or water or air, then that that wouldn't be a problem. And theoretically, and this is where the abundance argument comes from, we do. There's more than enough. But what we're trying to create is a society that exponentially consumes because the only way that money is created now is through debt. So there was a finite amount of money. And if I wanted to loan you $100, I would get $125 back. So that $25 is now new money being added into the circulation. This is assuming that we can continue to exponentially grow, that the oil will never run out, that the energy will never run out, the land will never run out, the water will never run out. But we know that we are consuming at a rate that is unsustainable. Therefore, the production of money and the way that our economy has been working is unsustainable. And this is why the only way to change the current trajectory is to look at your individual relationship with money. What Am I throwing this all on you? Absolutely not. <laughs> but what I am saying is this idea that we must continue to consume, that we will forever have unfulfilled needs, that only money can sustain them or uh, satiate them, is part of the economic programming that's really, it's actually really new. It's only in like the last 100, 150 years where all of this has been introduced. So by creating money, we create debt. And then we need more. We need to work more. We need more resources. We need, we need, 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 need. And the reality is, is that when we can understand what enough truly is, we don't need to continue consuming. Now, it's that slow of consumption that will stagnate this economy. And the reality is, is again, we didn't all need multiple houses and multiple cars and everything to be new. Less than 100 years ago, when we would get something, we would hold on to it. We would treat it nice. <laughs> it was a representation of value for us. Now we've gotten into such a consumer-based culture that we, we throw everything is throwaway. There's so much waste. But if we recycle, reuse, re-gift, we create a closed circuit where suddenly we, we can't experience enough. So the story of value is symbolic. Money is symbolic. And money cannot fulfill our needs. So this is where we go back to, uh, you, I don't believe you can ever go back. This is where we get to draw the line in the sand. And this is where we get to say the lie of separation and the age of debt are complete. Okay, 
really fucking great, BZ, right? Like these are huge, almost overwhelming concepts. But fear not, my friends, because Charles is able to ground these and then dissect them into a daily approach. So how the hell do we start to make these changes? And actually, before we get into that, let me read this quote. No longer will greed, scarcity, the quantification and commoditization of all things, the quote time preference, unquote, for immediate consumption, the discounting of the future for the sake of the present, the fundamental opposition between financial interest and the common good, or the equation of security with the accumulation be axiomatic. What Charles is saying is simply that the time of separation is over. And I think a key point there and the segue into the next section is the discounting of the future for the sake of the present. What we've been doing and what you'll, you know, why, why are local vegetables at your farmer's market more expensive than vegetables shipped from Mexico? Because your local farmer is assuming the cost of organic farming of taking care of the soil, of using local water aquifers and keeping things sustainable. It's a single or potentially a small team of people who are probably getting paid livable wages, who are working a sustainable amount. And that costs a certain amount of money, but that cost is in real time. You are investing in your present when you're consuming those foods, let alone you know how much healthier local produce is, that you're putting money back into your local economy, you're providing for local employment, so on and so forth. When you're working, when you're consuming these products from huge commercial endeavors, they are discounting the current cost by essentially stealing from the future. So there is no soil maintenance. They are using unsustainable amounts of water. People are not being paid sustainable wages. And they're just assuming that your kids or your grandchildren will deal with that. So we've gotten very used to, it's the same thing with fast fashion. This idea that, well, my present need in this moment is more important than the impact this consumption is going to have on my future. That is the unsustainable relationship with both need and with money. So we can work less or consume more in this current scenario. But what Charles suggests is rather than thinking about it in terms of work or consumption, let's think of it in terms of healing, healing this divide between spirit and matter, redefining our agreement with money. His whole proposition is what he refers to as a gift economy. And this isn't like, don't charge any money and don't get paid and give everything away and be completely altruistic. No. The nature of altruism and of gifting is very complex. And so much of how we experience both giving and receiving has been taught to us externally. And I actually talk a lot about this with my coaching clients in terms of being in service. And I'm going to read another quote. If you find yourself being lazy, procrastinating, doing slipshod work, showing up late, not concentrating, and so on, then perhaps the problem isn't your character after all. Perhaps it is a soul's rebellion against work that you don't really want to do. It is a message that says it is time to find your true work, that through which you can apply your gifts towards something meaningful. And so that's when he talks about the gift. It's in terms of how you engage with and interact with yourself, with your environment, and with your community. Altruism is altruistic because it feels fucking good. It feels good to give. 
It feels good to give without attachment to the outcome, without hoping that you're going to manipulate or receive or get something in return, right? And there does need to be the recognition of that gift. And, and one of the things that I found really fascinating about Charles' proposition is that one of the reasons we find ourselves separating and isolating in community, especially when we have actually gained the monetary independence, if you will, from others, is because we're afraid that giving obligates us. And then if I receive something from you, then I owe you something. No, that is the old paradigm. Giving should be done because actually those who give the most can be recognized as the best. You know, one of the reasons we've been taught to accumulate so much and to have so much money and to hoard our resources is because we've been programmed to think that that person with the most stuff is the most successful. But what if we started telling a different story that said the person who gives the most is the most successful? And it is actually by giving as much as you can that you receive as much as you could ever possibly want or need. Money does not equal the sacred. And Charles defines the sacred not as some like magic, hoodoo, voodoo, wu-af, whatever. He simply defines the sacred as that which is finite, the earth, the water, the atmosphere, and the energy. And so when we can heal that divide between the sacred and the physical, we will solve this problem. The unquantifiable has always been the most valuable, yet we use money to define value. And okay, great. Once again, really lofty, really crazy concepts. I am going to spell out the sort of eight steps that Charles suggests in terms of how to actualize sacred economics. And again, you know, even when I first read the word sacred economics, I was thinking it's, you know, there's going to be no money and everybody's living in communes and we're all wearing like long <laughs> oatmeal colored tunics and singing kumbaya but that's not what he means at all sacred in terms of that which is finite so tying our dollar to the commons so that if you are spending or exchanging a universal dollar it is related to the current finite resource that you are essentially investing in so it, uh, it gets a little complicated. That wasn't the best explanation. But as I walk you through these steps, I think it, it might come to light. The first being debt cancellation. And it's so interesting because a lot of the people that I work with have this kind of moment where they go, holy shit, it really is just changing my thoughts. It really is just identifying the feelings and emotions and reactions I'm having and consciously choosing something different. That changes the entire experience. And when they realize that, they get a little bummed out because the initial reaction is, holy shit, I've spent the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years living my life in such a limited capacity when all I had to do was change the way I think. And there's resentment, which is totally normal. I think when we talk about debt cancellation, it's really easy to go, well, what about everybody who's paid off their debt? What about people who paid off their student loans? Like, well, what, what recompense do they have? And look, I don't have all of the answers, but my opinion on that is 
This is how change happens. And unfortunately, and something Charles talks a lot about, is it often takes crisis. It often takes, you know, rock bottom to create change. And the whole purpose of debt is to create more money. So if we simply cancel debt, people who are limiting their expenditures because they quote unquote owe a debt to society will suddenly feel free to start to circulate their resources more abundantly. So debt cancellation isn't about fucking over the people who have quote unquote been responsible. It's about changing our mindset about money and that this, the debt cycle, it's not working anymore. It's not, you know, this is one of the reasons like the interest rates and all of these tools were designed to stimulate or contain the economy. And the economy has only ever been measured by growth. But we're now at a point where growth is no longer the metric for success. Sustainability is. Supporting each other is. Gift, you know, this gift economy that Charles talks about. If we measured how much people gave as opposed to how much people earned, it would change everything. You can start doing that right now. Now, debt cancellation isn't something you can do right now, but um, Charles, you know, this is this is more like how would society as a whole roll this out? Debt cancellation being the first step. Then the second is this a negative interest currency. And this is happening already in Northern Europe, um, in Switzerland, I think in Germany, in Japan, saving money. Look, in our current language, we would think of it as you're being penalized to save money. But the point of it is, is that money, it's actually, it's what happens in cryptocurrencies as well. By reducing the amount that is in current circulation, you're increasing the value of the currency, right? Supply and demand. So the less of it there is, the more of the more demand, the more valuable it's perceived to be. The idea being with a negative interest currency, and this is actually how currency was back in the day when it was very first created and you know, silver coins were being minted by these, these rulers of the land. If you had $100 at the beginning of the year, 5% of that would be burned, essentially. So by the end of the year, that $100 would be worth $95. With the, so the encouragement is that on spending that money, because the only reason we save that money is we're afraid of what's going to happen. We perceive money as being security because of scarcity, because we felt so separated from the support and from the abundance that's available to us and through our own communities if we were continually giving and supporting each other, there wouldn't be any need to save or to hoard because those, all of those items would be in continual circulation. And you can rally against this all you want. You're listening, so I don't think this is your mindset, but it might feel a little bit like, how the fuck do we do this? We did this for thousands of years and it worked really fucking well. So by firstly canceling the debt and then secondly introducing this negative interest currency, we start to change our relationship with money. The third step is compensation for depleting of the commons. And so this is what Charles talks about. We stop using money backed by something that should be owned by the people. So, I mean, he goes so far as to say like abolishing rent because no one should own the land or the house that is on top of it. We shouldn't be, let me rephrase that. It's not that people shouldn't own it. It's that we shouldn't be profiting off of something that should be accessible to everybody. 
So again, these are these are some pretty wild concepts for us to hear. And I, I had a moment during 2020, one of my old businesses was flipping properties. And I realized how predatory that model is and how predatory renting is. And I haven't figured out the answer on the other side of it. I've got, I've actually got an idea, but I'm not going to share it quite yet. Where, you know, and I hear a lot of very well-intentioned people talk about building up their property portfolio and renting to those who would never be able to afford a home. That's, that's part of the old paradigm. And so we have this opportunity to create something new. And so by tying the dollar to things like to reforesting, you know, old world forests or to ensuring that if you're using water, it is being sustainably accessed. And if you say, well, how the fuck do we do that? We tie, we, we currently back our dollar with oil. But what we're not taking into consideration is the pollution being created, the temporary contractors that are being abused in order to drill that oil, the various owners of the land and the owners of the machine, everything has been actually separated in that industry so that it's simply the oil producer and the production of oil, the barrels of oil that are being tied to the dollar, not the land, not the air, not the water, you know, not the actually unquantifiable amount of damage that has been done to this earth in pursuit of this oil. Combine that with the actual numerous alternative energies that have been presented to this earth, but have been discredited because the, the dollar is tied to oil. I mean, it becomes this whole other conversation in and of itself. But if we can tie a dollar to oil, we can absolutely tie a dollar to a non-renewable resource and the effective management of that resource. So from there, he says that economic localization is the next step. And if you've been listening to me at all, you know, I'm a huge proponent of this, investing in our local economies and supporting our local producers, our local creators, but also our local workers. Most importantly, our local cultures. What makes one city or one neighborhood different than another are the places where you can engage with your community and where you can support your community. And he goes so far as to talk about actual localized currencies. And I think we're seeing a little bit of this in terms of, again, the cryptocurrency world. But there might potentially be a universal currency, this one that is actually tied to these non-renewable resources, these sacred elements in our environment, in our world. And then there's the more localized currencies. And now we went away with this, with this idea of globalization. But again, it's not working out really great. There are a lot of a lot of have-nots in this globalization equation. So by returning to local economies, by even having localized currencies, he sees this as the fifth step. Then there's the social dividend and this idea where we really start to double down on this concept of giving. So firstly, connecting to your gift, what you have to give, and your relationship with giving. Secondly, acknowledging the gift. So celebrating those who give as opposed to those who earn. And then finally, keeping these gifts in circulation. So we move from an accumulation-based consumption society to a giving, repurposing, recycling, reusing, repairing. <laughs> Remember when you used to fix things because it made more sense to get it fixed than it did to buy something new? From there, economic degrowth. And this is where we start to measure our success, not by growth, but by sustainability. And it is just, I was going to say unreasonable, but potentially unnatural to think that 
you will forever and only keep growing. The earth cannot sustain that. You as a human being cannot sustain that. So by understanding that it is actually a cycle that you are continually experiencing it and many cycles layered on top of each other, again, we not just create sustainability, but fulfillment. There is enough. And then from there, we really can implement that gift culture and the peer-to-peer -peer economics where we're localizing our economies. We are widely circulating everything that we need so that we can all experience abundance. Why does this matter? Why does this matter now? Why sacred economics? Why Think and Grow Rich? Why all of these books that we're going to be talking about in this Quantum Business Book Club? The whole point for me is that small business, community, sustainability, these things are challenging. We cannot do it all by ourselves. We've been told that. That is the illusion of separation that Charles goes on about. I've spoken at length about how I spent the first 20 years of, or uh, 15 years of my career like DIYIF. And I had so much pride in that. I can do it all. But in that, you know, I experienced multiple breakdowns, multiple rock bottoms, and I, I lost a lot. Relationships and health and security, homes, etc. So by changing our relationship with money, by changing our relationship to the economy and to the economics and the way that things have always been done, we start to understand firstly how we work and how to work with each other. Because we're all going to have different gifts, different strengths, different interests, what lights you up, what fulfills you, what what really engages you and your soul and your soul's work is going to be different than mine. That's fantastic. We can collaborate. There is no competition in a gift economy in these sacred economics. So notice where you're resentful. Notice where you feel obligated to receive. Because if you don't know how to give, you can't receive. If you don't know how to receive, you can't give. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of isolation. If you're trying to do it all, if you're not willing to let others in, you're in this unsustainable cycle. And it's just a simple matter of, of acknowledging, oh, okay, I'm, I'm here. What does that mean? I have, I've, been, I've talked a lot about this, a friend of mine that has been really sick and I've been watching her kids and helping the family out for years now. And when this was sort of all first happening and she realized like she couldn't get the kids to and from school. I was like, well, why don't you just do a carpool? That wasn't a thing. Now there's like an Uber for kids. But, you know, that's something that Charles talks a lot about in this book is when he and I don't know how old you are, but when we were kids, we would just leave the house and there would be other kids roaming around in the neighborhood. And if somebody fell down or needed to go to the bathroom, you could just run into one of their houses. And the privatization of the commons. So not just the privatization of water or electricity or land, but also the privatization of what used to be just human nature. Watching someone else's kid, feeding your neighbors. You know, can you remember the last time you ran across the street to get a you know, cup of flour? or even like a loaf of bread. It just doesn't, I mean, it definitely happens in, in parts of the United States, but certainly not everywhere. And it feels antiquated. That's the, the illusion of separation. And it boils down to, you know, are you willing to teach someone in your business to do the thing that you think is so important or that only you can do? Are you willing to ask your suppliers for a little bit of a discount because you're struggling this month, but like knowing 
you'll be able to make it up and order a ton more moving forward? Are you willing to use local suppliers, even though they're going to cost a little bit more? Do you have the relationship with your customers and your community that can get you through something like a forced closure for three months? These are the questions and the resentments and the challenges that we're experiencing that we feel like are completely out of our control because we've externalized them. So what this whole book is about is how can you be the change you want to see in the world? So in this refray and in this, like, how do we change our relationship with money and our relationship with our own day-to-day livelihoods and this idea of gifting to receive? How can you look at your work as your service? This isn't something forced upon you. This isn't something you have to, you know, oftentimes you hear people, you ask people, why are you doing this? Why are you working so hard? Why are you charging these prices? And they say, I have to, I have to support my family. I have to pay off my debts. Okay. And I'm not arguing with that. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just suggesting you can think about it like I get to. And just by simply saying that, it changes the way you're going to feel about your work. I know people who work 20-hour days, seven days a week. They've done that for 40 years because their work is their service. Their work is their offering to the world. So when you start with the gift you have the opportunity to share, you also will receive. It's about creating that both and get out of the binary. You can both work and be in service. So finally, we often create change from a place of pain and suffering. I mentioned this a little bit earlier and Charles talks a lot about this. And in business, it can feel separate, right? It, it can feel very external, but you know, this is why I do the holistic approach. And oftentimes you'll find, you know, my clients have been saying, wow, this, this is a lot more like therapy or life coaching or spiritual coaching. Because if you can't compartmentalize just simply the work or simply the financial situation in your life, You're, it's a wheel. Then if you've got a flat, it's going to affect the entire momentum and forward motion of your entire life. So when you get hurt, when you feel hard done by, when the city decides to redo the street out in front of your business or when, you know, there's a global pandemic and global supply chains are effed and no one wants to go to work or whatever it feels like the external circumstance may be. Feel that pain, feel the resentment, feel the blame, feel the kicking and the screaming, feel the hopelessness, and then process. Do not act from this space. You cannot rationalize away the hurt, the blame, and the last 200 years of programming or potentially 2,000 years. But what you can do once you've processed once you've reached a more neutral space, I start to ask yourself, what are the fundamentals of my thinking and feeling that I can address and control that are within my scope of influence? And from there, you can create not just a better experience for you, but a better experience for everybody. So one last quote for you. This new self is interdependent and, even more, partakes for its very existence in the existence of all other beings to which it is connected. This is the connected self, the larger self, which extends to include, by degrees, everyone and everything in its gift circle. 
Within that circle, it is not true that more for you is less for me. Gifts circulate so that the good fortune of another is also your good fortune. It's a really fantastic book. It's definitely a counterbalance to a lot of the economic and financial books I think I'm going to discuss. <laughs> I'm going on the sticking to the plan. Well, this is episode two and we're already off plan. So it's an amazing, I, I mean, I can't say enough about Charles Eisenstein and his vision. And I think the last, he's got a new book. The more of his talks kind of revolve around this now, because again, sacred economics was introduced a long time ago. Oh my gosh. It's something like the beautiful world our heart knows to be true. And it would have been great if I had that pulled up, but I've been talking at your face for like almost an hour now. So you know where to find me at the BZ channel on social media, NicoleBZ.com on the web. Please sign up for The Loop. It is the first place you're going to get to learn about the books I'm reading in real time as opposed to my favorite books that I'm doing on this book club, but also some of my current obsessions from music to art to crypto to community, where I am in the world, which is going to be a lot of different places this year. And also the first place you're going to get announcements like workshops. The workshop I did um, last week was sold out before I even really, I mean, announced it. So if you want to be included in things like that, The Loop is going to be the best place to hear about them. some point, I'm going to get the container up and going. That's the Discord community. The Anti-Business School will launch soon. And thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. Sending you all the love. That's it. That's all I got. 